Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And we have a guest on. Um, I'm really excited to talk about something that's, um, yeah, to kind of revisit something. <laughs> we'll, which we'll, get into it. we'll get into uh, it. First off, uh, could you introduce yourself? Um, I'm Liz Henry. Hi. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm a blogger and um, I used to be a much more active blogger, you know, um, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and I'm here to talk about the gay girl in Damascus controversy. Yeah. yeah. So um, I know some of our listeners might have also been following that uh, from the beginning. Uh, but for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, could you talk through what exactly that whole situation and scandal was? Yes, sure. Um, so there was a blogger. Um, I was actually at the time working for Blog Her, which was an organization that was like a network of women who blog. Uh, so meant to promote women writers, give them sort of a monetization thing, like you could put ads on your blog, basically. But it was very nice, and we had um, conferences and a big community. And my focus there was, uh, my job there was technical, but I also had a sort of a side hustle with them um, being a world blogging editor. So looking around the world, um, I focused on Latin America, but I also was like aware of just anyone blogging in English um, that I could read <laughs> from around the world because I didn't want my information to be so uh, Western, you know, English centric. So I was aware of this blog and I was especially excited to find this queer um, blog by Amina. It was called Gay Girl in Damascus. And I became especially aware of her as there was a sort of a controversy around her post called My Father the Hero, where like the secret police came to her dad's door and he defended her and, you know, sent them away. And that was sort of this amazing post about how her she was outed to her dad and he defended her even though he is kind of homophobic. He was like, no, I'm going to defend my gay daughter. Yeah. And this was back in 2010? I don't know if you guys... Well, that was 2011, right? Or 2010? 2011. That was maybe spring of 2011. So I actually went back and looked at some of my notes and emails and uh, reconstructed a little bit of the timeline because I couldn't remember completely clearly. This is all 10 years ago. So 2011, um, it was June 7th and I was at work at BlogHer in my little cubicle. And I started getting messages from people saying, you have to help us. There's a blogger who's just been detained. It's Gay Girl in Damascus. You have to help save Amina. Um, and, you know, I know that people knew that I had connections in the sort of human rights um, world. My partner was working for the Committee to Protect Journalists, um, and I knew people at Human Rights Watch and like Penn and um, that kind of thing, as well as having this um, connection to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who are also trying to do work to defend people's digital rights and privacy and right to free expression. And that's where I called in Jillian. I think maybe Jillian talked to me or maybe I talked to her. I don't actually remember the sequence. She might have been one of the people going, oh my God, help us save Amina. Or I might have turned to her to say, I know you have better connections than me. So the post uh, that revealed this was on June 7th in the morning, I think. And it was by someone called Rania Ismail, who is her cousin, who had her blog password um, saying that she was detained. She was like pulled into a van. It was a very familiar pattern. We had been hearing stories about that kind of thing of people being pulled into an unmarked van off the street and detained. So it was all sort of plausible. So very quickly, there was a hashtag. There was like a banner. There was a whole Facebook group with 20,000 people with free Amina all over it. And the State Department um, was looking for her. 
the story, her story was that she was a dual US citizen and, and, and Syrian citizen, but I couldn't find any record of her. She was supposedly, her real name was used by the cousin saying we have to save her. Um, the State Department then came back that same day and said, we don't see her. Like we don't have any record of this person. So people started coming up with theories. My spidey sense was sort of going off about hoaxes yeah. <laughs> and people who were blogging marginalized identities <laughs> um, because that was a pattern I had seen many times before and I had been involved in debunking some of those um, some of those cases. Oh, wow. So I started digging in and within a few hours realized it was fake and had very complex feelings. I was like, this is horrible. Like, am I doubting? There were already people who doubted her existence either because they felt it was implausible for there to be a lesbian who was that out um, or just a lesbian at all in Syria, which of course yeah. I'm sure there are many. And then people questioning specific details, right? Which would always be kind of explained away as I changed the details to fictionalize it so I couldn't be caught. Um, but here, right. nothing really was adding up. And so I posted a blog post that afternoon saying, hey, sorry y'all, but I don't think this is quite real and here's why. And then people contacted me all day long based on that. I think I remember your blog post. <laughs> I guess I was the first to post these doubts, which other people were sharing. So all of those other people doing research and poking around on the internet contacted me either privately, like through email or in the blog comments. And then it was like a huge, you know, uh, you've seen this happen, I'm sure, but like everybody just powered up and there was suddenly all these like group documents and people doing just amazing amounts of research. And we found tracks of Amina going back to say 2007 or 2006, I think, under slightly different names. So I found her screen names. I found the forum she was posting under, role-playing game posts, um, the alternate history of the Arab world posts. So that was very interesting. But it was just freaking out going, oh, alternate history, huh? <laughs> right. Um, Not, yeah, kind of a, a red flag. Yeah, it, it did all kind of hang together. Um, and often um, this was a person who developed intense relationships with people online and um, would write, you know, thousands of words back and forth with, with many people who I talked to who were very shocked that, I mean, uh, and, uh, that, that anyone would doubt her, her reality. Um, in the meantime, of course, I can't leave out Sandra um, Bagaria, who was the person reporting to the State Department and other places, uh, talking to the media saying, my girlfriend has been detained. Like we were going to meet in Rome and, and she's been arrested and I need to save her. And she was being interviewed by the media and um, you know, going to all kinds of government officials. I had to, my first question of course was, is she actually Amina? Is she just like somebody who's so messed up that she's inventing this whole thing? No, she was not Amina. She was real. I talked to her. We had a very interesting video chat. Um, <laughs> it was a fairly devastating experience for her. That was her girlfriend. They had been talking for six months and they were just about to meet in person. Yeah. God, God, so violating. Like she was just so violated. Yes, I, I, I thought so. If, I don't know if you're aware of the movie, The Amina Profile. Yes. Yeah, I watched it. So um, 
I watched it a while ago, a few days. Yeah, yeah. There's a documentary about the whole situation, and it, it. I thought it did an amazing job of representing what it's like, the intensity of having an online relationship develop like that. And from, I'll speak like from my perspective, this was the first time I had ever, um, I had ever seen like a queer Arab perspective outside of my own. And I was very obviously invested in this blog because of that. And I was very, I felt so connected to this person. I was like, wow, here is someone like, I don't know, just, yeah, just saying so much that I've never seen anyone be able to say or anyone say this again. This was back in like 2011, way before I was like, and probably most people were seeing much queer representation from the Swana region. Um, and I just like it felt very validating, very emotional reading this blog. It was like very raw. I mean, I gotta hand it to the guy behind this. He's a very good writer, very compelling oh, so writer. And yeah. Yeah. He I'm was like, very engaging. I'm like, can, he was so engaging. I'm like, can you not use this writing skill for something more productive? Like, you have talent. Just use it. Use it for good, not evil. Yes. Um, and it's sad because, like, even, um, even after all of this was discovered, the fact that this was a hoax. There was still part of me that felt connected to the person that we had all thought to exist. And so it was really hard to like let go of her. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people felt that way. Um, and yes, I so, think so too. Yeah, a lot of I think a lot of people, it was kind of like losing, it was losing someone. It was like, wow, uh, this person who really meant a lot to us. And suddenly we learned that she doesn't exist actually. Um, and yeah, she, this harmed so many people, especially Sandra, I would say. I mean, probably more than Sandra, but like Sandra's a key, key person here who was like very directly affected for a prolonged period of time, very violated. Also, um, I, I just have to say, like talking about this on the podcast, on our own podcast that we have started called The Queer Arabs, 10 years later is just so surreal for me because I'm like, okay, now, now we are connected to so many queer Arabs. But at the time, I mean, this is all I had. This is probably all that some other people had. Um, and so to be able to like speak about this in our own voices, on our own platform, it's kind of, it feels like we've come full circle in a weird way. Um, yeah, it also makes me wonder, like, would this go over as easily now? I don't think it would. I, I mean, I'm sure there's still hoaxes that happen now, but I think part of the appeal of what she was doing is that people felt so starved for that kind of representation that they just really, they just really wanted to believe in it. Right. And now it's not as desperate. And I feel like there's more of an online queer Arab community in general and space that, that like I would flag that no one else no one knows knew her, her. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly that like no one would have connections but it's like it would eventually come then, out and these things come out yeah. when somebody's about to meet so that's kind of like why she had to be detained and shut down that's why a lot of hoaxes suddenly die of cancer <laughs> right <laughs> you know, they have a track yeah yeah ending that engages lots of people and then it explains their failure to show up for the blog meetup or the the rendezvous with the lover there's like 
cancer or uh, detention, uh, permanent detention <laughs> <laughs> or like a kidnapping. Um, yeah. Do you want to, can you talk about like from your perspective, I mean, how did this affect you? Because I know, I know you were really close to it, like at the time. Well, I just, before I say that, I just have to say also, I was aware that there was a blogger detained in Damascus. So there was like Tal, I'll, oh no, she was in, you know what? I can't remember what country she was from. Oh dear. Okay. Well, Tal Al-Maluria, okay. name. And she was detained and, you know, thrown in jail for her blogging. Um, I don't think she was thrown in jail for being a lesbian. She was just blogging about what, you know, her life and her thoughts. Um, and um, and she was she was sentenced to something like seven or eight years in, in, in prison. And I don't actually know what happened to her. She, you know, she has a Wikipedia page. You can look her up and everything, but I, I haven't actually figured out what happened to her. And if anyone knows. I ask you to repeat her name. Tal Almaluhi. But yeah, I guess I, I don't think anything about what quote unquote Amina was saying was like implausible. I mean, people, people have gotten detained and arrested for just censorship and um, violations of free speech. So yeah, I don't think there's, I don't think people should feel stupid for getting played. It was all very plausible. Yeah. But I, I guess my thought is that it also did this sort of harm, right? And this other dimension aside from harming yeah. um, the ability of people to connect and trust each other. It also sort of harmed people in this way of, you know, international human rights organizing. <laughs> so yeah, that totally. was... That what I would say is that I then uncovered whole other networks of fake lesbians. <laughs> um, so there were people being interviewed who said, oh, well, a mean network of blogs like Lesbiatopia and Les Get Real and all these other sort of blog conglomerations, like a group, group blog or a news aggregator. And they were saying, oh, um, uh, we have information about her. Um, and then those people were being interviewed by media and quoted in like the Washington Post and stuff, but they turned out to be fake lesbians too. <laughs> so it went, it went deep. <laughs> what? Why was this such a thing? <laughs> so it was a thing. So the person running Liz Get Real and Lesbiatopia at that point was Paula, the surf mom who lived on the islands of outer islands of the Carolinas uh, with, with her surf dog, Sammy and her three children and her wife. Um, but that was actually a military dude named Bill Graber who was just making the whole thing up. I think he was from Illinois somewhere. <laughs> just, just why, why people? <laughs> so the imagining Bill and Tom lost her sexting each other, you know, in the middle of the night was pretty entertaining. <laughs> God, uh, have any of these people behind behind this like explained the psychology of this? Like, what what drove them to assume these identities? I wonder. Is it that lucrative to be a to some extent? Yes. <laughs> but nothing that they say. You can't believe anything they say. They'll spin it a hundred different ways. So mm -hmm. believing, I'm sure, is always a. So during the investigation, I started getting emails. Of course, I was emailing Ben and Ali and Jillian and other people who were involved, uh, the folks in the documentary and Sandra. Um, and we were all comparing notes and sharing information. 
Um, but one of the people emailing me and commenting on my blog posts turned out to be obviously Amina or the Amina entity, as I was calling it. <laughs> so that was yeah, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I realized that just from style of engagement, I was like, oh, this person is very charming and engaging and they could write a really like they're throwing up just clouds of smoke about theories of what could be plausible, trying to sort of obscure the trail, but trying to play on my sympathies, like kind of studying me and going, what would appeal to her? Like, oh, what if we're actually protecting, actually um, the person emailing me was like, I'm a trans woman in Phoenix. And I'm like, no, you're a Tom McMaster. Anyway, <laughs> um, so, <laughs> had good reasons to hide her real identity. So part of the, the marginalization, you know, you come up, it, it, the more reasons there are to actually obscure your identity, the more, of course, other people don't want to pry into your life and, you know, you know, question you. So I think that's part of the attraction. I think the other part of the, there's, there's some sort of exoticizing, you know, uh, thing going on. There's definitely like a sex component going on and a desire for authenticity in kind, like Rachel Dolezal. So I think all those things play. Yeah, I think, yeah, that all makes sense. I don't know, like, and I mean, I know you, you kind of knew what was going on by that point, but it probably felt kind of violating knowing someone was trying to like figure out your triggers. Yes, I was, some, she was trying to manipulate me. They, he, <laughs> the entity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you would realize that that I, I just had to realize, like, A, when I talk to someone new, I have to prove that I'm real. <laughs> right. right. That's a good reminder. I was being called by the media, and so it was quite stressful. And then my work basically let me, you know, I was working for this blogging company, so they were like, well, hey, just take your time and take this week and go ahead and just talk to CNN and BBC and stuff and deal with your hoax. And then maybe write us a post later. <laughs> so they were very, they were very supportive of the whole um, investigation and the sort of whirlwind I ended up caught up in. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you were supported. This, I don't know, this sounds really, I don't know. It, it just it sounds like something you didn't sign up for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, something I didn't, uh, I, I haven't totally looked into or followed up on. Um, did this, Thomas guy face any consequences when he was caught? Well, I guess his wife found out that he was, you know, <laughs> his wife, who was some kind of professor in Syrian studies, you know, found out what he was doing on the computer was probably not working on his dissertation, was probably like emailing all these people and developing all these relationships. So I'm sure there were some consequences. Yeah. I don't really know. But, um, Okay. Um, we tried, I think Ben and Ali were like, okay, we're going to try to do this as ethically as possible. Like we talked about the ethics, like we are sort of outing someone, like maybe their mental health is going to suffer. They're going to have lose their job or something like what's going to happen. We don't know, but we felt that it was more important to present the truth. Um, and so um, basically they confronted Tom with the evidence um, they were they were going back and forth with Tom, who was denying it, and then they finally said, "We have so much evidence. We are going to publish this stuff. Um, we want to give you this opportunity to publish your own post first, 
like you confess and then we'll post. Um, so, but during that period of kind of negotiating, I got a phone call of from Tom crying and begging us not to reveal the whole thing and turn the eye of the internet on to him. It was very emotional. <laughs> yeah, but we we did we did yeah. go ahead and uh, put God, that out poor there. Catfish. Yeah. Yeah, you know, later, you know, at the end of the profile, not to spoiler the movie, but but uh, Sandra goes and finds Tom and confronts him. Yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. And that's probably yeah, it's just it does sound emotional talking to the person who has the mind who created this person, this character, because it's still kind of like okay, this came from you. I connected with something that came from you and now you're I'm having to like face someone else but who like you know the the this very compelling individual who we got so attached to it's still it is like in a sense a part of him whether it should be or not and it's like to have to face him and to have him pleading saying like don't, you know, please don't out this, don't publish this. I'm sure that was just like intense all around for you, um, for Sandra to just like have to have all of this being thrown at you at once. Yes, it was, it was extremely emotionally um, intense. Um, and, but I think if you frame it, you know, if you frame it as the person spinning the story, the many stories that shift over time, um, the hoaxers, um, who people who do this, you know, Munchausen by internet or whatever you want to call it, they're very good at the storytelling, you know. Um, it's like they're doing some sort of live theater with you, but without your consent. Um, so you're kind of trying to say that, that they contain the goodness of that person. And that may be true, but for me, it's really outweighed by the abusiveness of the lies of what they're doing. Like, I, I just Absolutely. think it's deeply unethical. <laughs> Um, so it's like a charming liar. These are very, very charming. It's how they get away with what they're doing. Exactly. They're like, someone like that is so good at like appealing to people with good hearts and people who want the best for humanity. Like they know, they know how to pull at those heartstrings like very effectively. And it's, it's really disturbing. Yeah. So I guess I'd be more willing to think about the good in the person if I saw them actually changing, you know, in a sort of restorative justice model. Like, were they really accountable? Did they really think about it? Did they do anything to actually change? Or is Tom McMaster just doing it all over again somewhere else, uh, you know, more with more skills? I, you know? Yeah. Do you know, <laughs> uh, so do you know if he faced... Oh, sorry. Do you know if he faced any legal consequences? I don't believe so, no. Wow. Yeah, I don't think... Is there any law against catfishing in that way? The only way I could see it becoming legal is the um, the sexual aspect. Um, yeah. Because he was, I guess, in a way... I, in, definitely in my eyes, I don't know, in uh, a legal sense, was non-consensually uh, being involved sexting Sandra. Um, or taking sex. I don't from think that's illegal. You know, harassment is illegal, but I don't think you know fake sexting is illegal. <laughs> so I don't think yeah. like the law screws 
your identity to that degree at all any more than it's illegal for like you know Rachel Dolezal to do what she does. Right? You can be, yeah. um, you can be yeah. her and do her thing unless you're taking money, like you're defrauding, you know, a scholarship or you're taking a grant or something like that, um, or getting mm-hmm. people to give you money, maybe false identity. But I don't think it's illegal, at least not in the U.S. In my experience. Oh, yeah, and it's like I, I also wondered about the aspect of using someone's photo in a, that different context. But I guess even that's that happens so much. That's not even even that's not illegal. I guess technically. No, I think people uh, get those things taken down with DMCA, you know, copyright requests. Um, if they see them. So if you see your photo being used by someone else, you can try to get the ISP to take it down or the web host. Got you. Okay. Another thing I'm kind of wondering about, uh, so even after Amina disappears <laughs> as as a concept, um, there's still kind of this whole community surrounding her, like all the free Amina people, all of her fans, followers who, I mean, if there's any bright side to this, it's uh, those people in a way, got connected to each other. Um, people who are invested in that story, maybe some people who are uh, queer, Arab themselves. Um, what kind of happened to that that community or that cluster of people after this all blew up? Um, I well, there actually was an organization that was, uh, I think it was called Awaz, like A W A A Z. Does that sound familiar? So there was an organization. Yeah, at the time. And so a lot of people, I would, I just kept mentioning it over and over in my blog comments to say, like, there is work that sounds reasonably legit. Although I know there was lots of drama that I wasn't privy to. Like, there was lots of intercommunity um, drama and people doubting each other or people feeling like you're a government plant, uh, et cetera. And I, I honestly, I don't remember the details of that. But I think um, I did try to just direct people towards the community that I knew about that already existed so they could connect in that way. This is definitely bringing me back to um, what I am realizing was definitely an impactful experience, uh, more impactful than I realized in the moment. Now maybe the investigation of the community together in some ways. That's one good thing that came of it. It's like bringing community together through this very strange, strange yeah. process. And even though I wasn't personally following it at the time, like I, I still continuously meet people who talk about how they felt like so personally violated and played by yeah. this blogger and really felt connected to her at the time. I don't. It makes me. It also makes me happy that it's this circumstances have changed in certain ways um like at the time the only voice on like queer arab issues was this person who's appropriating this identity for personal gain or for thrills or whatever the fuck he was doing um and and now like even if there's someone who's a hoax it could never have that same um impact and harm on people because people aren't relying on one singular voice anymore um yeah that's really good yeah i'm just i'm just glad people have found ways to speak for themselves and not have thomas (laughs) yeah yeah i'm so glad that like your podcast exists and there is more community and more visibility out there like it's very heartening for me 
to see that the times are changing to some extent. It doesn't mean that like all homophobia has gone away, but there is, there's so much yeah. progress. It's amazing in my lifetime. Is, to have yeah. Seen. Yeah. yeah. And I, I guess this is my chance to say thank you for everything you did at the time, um, everything you dealt with and um, yeah, and the way that you supported um, a community that was impacted. So it's actually, it's really cool to get to talk to you. Um, so, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> you too. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what else you work on now outside of um, this? Catching, <laughs> catching hoaxes? <laughs> yeah, what's up now? Oh, I still really love hoaxes, but there's so many people who are great investigators now. I still go back and check on certain ones. Um, I did write a article um, that you can look at that may be of interest if people are interested in investigation called um, Investigation Online. It was in Model View Culture. Um, and I forget the subtitle, but it's something like um, the, the gist of the article is here's how to dox people who you need to dox for your own purposes. Like you, nice. maybe you're getting harassed, threatened online. Um, and you want to know, is this person really a threat? Is this somebody I know in real life? Is it someone in my town or are they across the world somewhere and they're just some random troll? Um, so here's kind of how to investigate them using, um, you know, OSINT, like open source intelligence, right? Um, using the yeah. just commonly available uh, web tools and things like that. Um, and here's how to do that. And here's some discussion of the ethics of what you're doing and, um, you know, the act of investigating, I, I think, is a can feel uh, like a violation in itself. Like it can feel like a very ethical gray area. But what you actually do with that information is up to you. And I think it's important skill for us to have um, to to protect yeah. ourselves. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Um, that's not Thank what you. I do. Yeah, we'll I link. No, no. For a while, I considered like going and becoming a private investigator, but I rejected that. And I just work in tech. Like I worked on Firefox for eight years um, for Mozilla and um, uh, as a software release manager. And now I work for Twitch. So um, I work for, you know, I work oh, in tech cool. and um, I'm a writer and a translator. So I'm a literary translator, um, uh, mostly poetry um, and mostly Spanish to English. So I have poetry books and translations oh, wow. available yeah, do you want to point people to like where they can see your your books, your work? Sure. Um, I guess my um, last full book, um, poetry, was called Unruly Islands, and it's sort of a techno utopian poetry uh, weirdness. <laughs> and uh, then cool. I uh, out in twenty eighteen. That is my translations of a book called Milai by Carmen Berenguer, who's a Chilean poet, um, who's really interesting and weird and wild. She's like, you know, messes up language. She kind of fucks around with language in her own way and uh, um, um, does things that are very chaotic and difficult to translate. And I love that. I love things that are kind of like, oh, that's untranslatable. You do. <laughs> you've made up your own language. And, you know, you've made words yeah. and rejected. Thing. And um, so I love to try to translate that kind of challenging thing and represent it in English in a respectful to the original way. Um, yeah. Poetry is so hard to translate. Yeah. It's like a fun puzzle. You go into kind of a trance. So I do love the American Literary Translators Association is great for anyone who loves translation. 
I just plugged their conference because it's fabulous and is a great community of people who just really love translation and aren't necessarily making a giant career out of it. They're just, you know, do it for the love. Oh, that's that's amazing. Thank you so much for talking with us. This was this was really nice. Really like it feels like some little act of justice um, to get to talk about this on say, this like, platform. Justice, but not like auditory just a little bit of auditory justice a little yeah yeah <laughs> it feels nice to re, re to re revisit this um on this platform um and just get to connect with you so i really appreciate you coming on thanks it's lovely thanks for having me and it's nice to meet you if you're in san francisco yep and come over for tea that would we'll be amazing i would love that let us know if you're in new york yeah post-pandemic i will Thank you all so much for listening and thank you, Liz, again. This was wonderful. Thanks.